Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. All right, folks, today we've got a heck of a good podcast for you. Today I'm interviewing one of the most prolific handgun hunters that I know of, Dr. Larry Rogers, who has hunted all over the world, and he is just always active with depredation permits. He is responsible for eliminating more destructive species in West Virginia than than I can even think of. He's meticulous about his records, and if you follow him on social media, you know that he is just very accomplished, and he has a very enviable record of hunting experience. He also has so many articles in the Six Gunner, both the classic and the new Six Gunner that we put out now. And so I invite you to all subscribe to that. You can go to subscribepage.com forward slash the Six Gunner and receive the new Six Gunners, or you can sign up on our website, handgunhuntersinternational.com to be on the list for the classic Six Gunner, the old, the old ones that we digitize and give away for free. Both of them are free. Well, I hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did. Wealth of experience, lots of good stories, some some wild, some that we may never see the likes of again. Here's my interview with Dr. Larry Rogers, the West Virginia hitman. Dr. Larry Rogers, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Ron. You are one of the most requested guests on this podcast. I don't know if you know that because I don't know anybody who has more experience in terms of numbers than than Doc yeah. Rogers. And of course, we've known about you for years because you wrote for the Six Gunner back when JD was running HHI. And what the Hitman uh, is your nickname. And you got up to what number are you on in the Hitman articles? 30 something, almost 40? Oh, yeah. For articles, yeah. 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 And we've always Easily. we've always enjoyed reading that. So I'm happy to get a chance to visit with you. Let's start with this. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, you know, where you grew up and and why you decided to become a doctor and what kind of drives you? Well, my father was a coal miner and my mother was a teacher and we lived in a coal mining camp that had about 30 houses that were identical, four rooms each with a fireplace on each side, no bathrooms, but a john outside. And I lived there for 12 years. Uh, my my dad was had a, a history of uh, hunting. His family raised raised him in the 20s and 30s, and they were very poor. They uh, hunted a lot to get their food, and so that got me into hunting. Uh, my mother, being a teacher, pushed me to do better in school. So I studied a lot and did pretty good in school. Uh, what drives me? is, uh, well, what, why did I become a doctor? In the eighth grade, we had to write a paper on what we wanted to be. So I researched things. I looked at lawyers and other professional jobs and doctors, and the doctor thing really enthusiastic. Uh, was, I was really enthusiastic about it because they did so many things. Uh, babies, hearts, uh, surgery, all kinds of things. So I really got interested in that. 
I almost got sidetracked once I got in uh, high school. I got into music, and I ended up being a pretty good trumpet player. I was first-year trumpet in junior high school and high school, and uh, I even had a band in high school. Uh, but I realized that if I stayed in music, uh, I wouldn't be able to do all the things I was interested in in medicine, and I also wouldn't be able to afford this really bad habit I have called hunting. <laughs> so that's why I became a doctor. <laughs> that's that's funny. That's interesting to me. I, my family, I come from a medical family, not me, but my granddad was a plastic surgeon. My mom and my grandma were nurses. My best friend is an ER doc. Uh, so that's that's interesting your story about that because it kind of mirrors a lot of uh their stories as well what kind are you a friend yeah. are you a family practice doctor yeah i'm a board certified family practitioner i did uh 46 years of it uh the re- it's interesting the reason i come to the town i live in and practice in my dad and i hunted the whole state every place and i found out that the potomac highlands in uh Grant County, where I live, on the eastern side of the Allegheny Mountains, had the best hunting for deer, bear, turkeys, everything. So when I got in my training in medical school, I came to the doctors in all the little towns around me and did interviews, and they all wanted me. And uh, the town I'm in, Petersburg, was the only one that had a hospital. So that's the sole reason I live in this town, because of the hunting that was available. And I haven't regretted it. My numbers have been fantastic all the years I've lived here. And yeah. I've had a great life. And medicine, too. Uh, I got to, uh, I went into family practice uh, so I could do everything. I've delivered babies. I set up our coronary care unit. And I remained its director for 40 years. Uh, did all kinds of minor surgery, nothing major. Uh, I've had a, a really nice life here in Petersburg. That's great to hear. So I know growing up probably weren't hunting with handguns a lot, especially in the younger days. You know, that wasn't really a thing for the generation that preceded yours. Uh, So how did you how did you make the leap from being a hunter to being a handgun hunter? Well, a couple of things. When I was young, really young, uh, I liked uh, carrying my pistols, toy pistols on my side. And I even have a picture of me with my two toy pistols and my groundhog pet that I had, uh, which is sort of funny. Uh, they're not pets for me anymore. <laughs> but uh, when my dad started taking me out hunting when I was five years old, uh, his brother went with us too, and the brother wanted to give my dad a little break uh, and took me hunting with him so dad could hunt by himself. Well, his uh, my uncle... Uh, used a uh, Smith uh, 22 to shoot squirrels with, a revolver. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. So I talked Dad into getting me a Harrington and Richardson uh, model 629-22, and I started shooting it, and I was uh, like eight or nine years old, and there was groundhogs in these uh, strip mines in the coal fields, and I started shooting some groundhogs that young with it. And that's what got me started. Oh, that's interesting. So yep. you were, yeah, that that was pretty pretty young. That's that's neat. Yeah. Um, yep. So, can you tell me your tell me about your first like your journey from the small game to big game handgun hunting? 
Yeah, the West Virginia was legal for varmint hunting with handguns for many years, but they were not legal for big game, including deer. And I and some other people kept pushing our legislature to get laws through to make it legal. It took them, I think it was until 1978 or 1979, that we finally got a bill where it was legal to hunt deer and bear uh, with handguns. So I I had at that time a Ruger Blackhawk 357 Magnum, and I couldn't wait to go out on my first deer hunt in a doe season. And I loaded up some 158 green Sierra hollow point, or jacketed hollow cavities, and I went out, and I saw one about 60, 70 yards. Uh, first shot wasn't the greatest. I think I hit him a little far back in the edge of the lungs, and he ran a little bit. But I put him down with the second shot, or put her down, and I was tickled to death. And that pretty much cemented me there with uh, handguns. And the final thing was, uh, that year I did the buck hunt with a rifle, uh, 30-06, and I killed one at uh, 402 yards, and I thought to myself, that's it, I've had enough, there's got to be more of a challenge, so I gave up my rifles completely, I started practicing with my handguns, the first couple years wasn't pretty, I wounded a few, killed a few, but then I got pretty good, and I've been 100% handguns ever since, I have not shot any game with a rifle since 1978. Wow. That's what, one of the things, you know, and I, I loved what you said about being tickled to death at the, at your first big game success. What were some of the things going through your head and heart after that success? Cause I love, one of the things that I am always talking about with handgun hunting is that kind of feeling that high, that addictive, you know, like we want to do that again. And it feels so good. What, what was it like? What was your state of mind after that? Oh, it's the high. It was almost like taking some kind of drug. I was hyper. I was, oh, I was super self-competent. Now I was a, now I was a real handgunner. Now I was a real hunter. And oddly enough, I still get that same sensation. I went out yesterday and killed five groundhogs, and I had the same feeling that I did when I killed that first deer. That's a that's another excellent point because I feel the same and I know a lot of other handgun hunters I've talked to also feel the same that you know it doesn't get boring. Right, never. Yeah. Exactly. You are obviously successful. We know that you do a lot of depredation hunting, you do a lot of yes. varmint hunting. Um, what's the secret to being able to be as prolific as you have? been as far as the number and the variety of animals that you've taken? Well, uh, my job helped me. Uh, Where I live, where I work and live in rural West Virginia, we had lots of farmers. So every farmer that came in, I asked them if they had farmer troubles, groundhogs. Oh, yeah, everybody did. And so first I asked them to hunt their groundhogs. And I had one time, I probably had 35 or 40 farms I could groundhog hunt on. I would not ask for permission to hunt anything else until one year of groundhog hunting, and I showed them how good I could be and how I could help their problem. Mm -hmm. Then I started asking them about turkey hunting and deer hunting, and then eventually I asked them about deer damage to their corn. 
So I ended up getting permission from all these farmers to do all of that. And uh, I had an enormous uh, pool to pick from. And uh, over the years, it was something else. My, my best years, I was killing over 500 groundhogs a year for seven out of eight years. My best year was uh, 634. Wow. My best year on deer I had a farmer that had enormous amounts of land with corn on it everywhere. I killed 151 deer one year. Mm. I cleaned them all by myself, and I give all my deer to poor, elderly, needy people. They never get wasted. That's fantastic. And I, I knew that was the case, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you say what exactly what you did with, do with your deer because yep. that is the le- less discussed part about it is how helpful sometimes this kind of thing can be to our communities yeah yeah i had a friend show me i used to have to hang deer to clean them i had a friend show me how to do it on the ground i can clean a deer now in about seven and a half to eight minutes man (laughs) i I believe it people doubted me on it so i had my friend that showed me come with me and make a video of it (laughs) oh oh i would love to see that that's i believe it but that's that's really neat so just from, I'm curious about this, when you talk about depredation stuff, what are, what's the, and I know it's going to be different in every state, but in West Virginia, is it you that gets the permit? Is it the landowner that gets the permit? What are the requirements for depredation permits? The landowner sees the deer coming into the corn. He calls the game warden. The game warden comes and inspects the corn. The, he gives the permits to the landowner, and the landowner is allowed normally to put five names on the permits for shooters. Well, nowadays, most of these farms I hunt on, they just put my name on them and don't fool with anybody else because most guys, uh, when they put their names on it, they'll come and kill one or two deer, and that doesn't help the corn damage. So they've earned, learned that I'm, uh, I have nothing to do all summer long, and I'm hunting six days a week for the deer, and so they normally just put my name on it, and that's it. Talking about all this experience you've had, I know that you've also you've been to Africa. You've hunted in Africa. You you mentioned you you do go out west some too, correct? A bunch. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's, can you tell me? I mean, this is going to be hard. I know with all your experience. Uh, can you describe your most memorable hunt? No, it's not hard. It's easy. Oh, that's good. My my professional hunter in Africa heard that there was a photographic game park south of Kruger National Park that had five elephants chasing the photographers. He made a deal with the game uh, uh, people there that he could bring a hunter in and help them take care of the elephants. So uh, I went in. They didn't know I was a handgunner, and they wanted me immediately to show them that I could shoot. So I got up on the Land Rover and took my 416 Taylor and rested and shot a pop can at 40 yards. And I could see the look on their face like, so what? You're not going to have a rest when you shoot the elephants. So I got off the landowner and uh, I told uh, one of the uh, scouts to go ahead and set that pop can up again. So I did centered it at 40 yards offhand. So they had some uh, scouts following these elephants' radios, they told us where to come in. Uh, As we were going in, one of the uh, game wardens came up to me. He said, I'd like to uh, 
shooting. I said, thank you. And he said, I'll tell you what, we got to kill all five of these elephants. After you kill the big one, keep shooting. Well, when we got into them, about 40 yards, they noticed us. The big one immediately turned towards me and started screaming. He put his ears out full. He put his trunk underneath him, and he started running as hard as he could. And my guide said, uh, you got to shoot as quick as you can. Well, dumb me, I had my uh, scope on my 416. I had it turned down by two power, but I had trouble seeing the landmarks on the elephant. And I finally did, and when I shot him, he dropped, and uh, the others went a little bit crazy. They were smaller, and I shot two more of them. So I got to shoot three elephants. We went to where he dropped from where I was shooting, and the distance was exactly 12 yards. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. I had a number two hunt, almost as exciting. I ended up getting the uh, number four uh, SCI line, 475 pounds, 11 feet plus uh, long. He charged me at 30 yards, and I dropped him with one shot with the 416 Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> those are definitely <laughs> those are definitely exciting. One, the one, another one is exciting. It's funny too. Uh, on a brown bear hunt in Alaska, my guide and I had. Uh, we got along real good, heard a lot of jokes carried on. Well, we didn't see any bears in the one spot, and a hurricane moved in, so the guide moved us back to the home base. And uh, uh, my guide said, well, we, uh, we'll see some moose, but we won't see any brown bear. So he uh, started blowing his moose call, and all of a sudden he said, oh, my God, there's a bear, and he's coming right at us, and he's running hard. And I started laughing. And he said, no joke, he is. Turn around and look. We were facing different ways. And here's this brown bear coming as hard as it could. And luckily, I had asked him before the hunt, where would I should I shoot one if he's, if he's, he's facing head on? He said, right under the chin. Well, I had my 375 JDJ with 285 grain grand slams. And the bear got to 30 yards. And I shot. And he dropped in his tracks. As soon as I shot, I heard click, and I looked at my guide, and I said, what happened? He said, I forgot to reload. Oh. <laughs> we went up to the bear and made sure it was dead. He was a smoker. He tried to, He got his cigarette out and tried to light it. He was shaking so much he couldn't light it, and I had to light it for him. Wow. <laughs> that was a cool hunt, too. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Jeez. Man. <laughs> Doc, I don't, you know, you don't hear stories like that very often. <laughs> nope, not many. Well, this is interesting because there aren't a lot of elephant hunters or lion hunters. And, you know, it's kind of a taboo subject these days, unfortunately, just I think because of misunderstanding. But right. when you're when you're in Africa and and I've seen videos of this, of, you know, an ele a successful elephant hunt and then a village comes out to do all the butchering and they make biltong or whatever. And it feeds however many families for a month. Uh, was, yep. was that your experience after the the elephant hunt? Yeah, when we when we killed we ended up killing all five of them. I killed three. The game uh, scouts killed two. Uh, they brought two flatbed trucks in with about 40 to 50 guys, mm -hmm. and they started working on them. Well, obviously, it's going to take a long time, so we went in uh, to a little town to eat. 
and we came back that night, and we got close to where they were working, and here's a male lion mating with the lioness. And we thought that was so cool. We tried to get pictures of it, but it was dark, and we couldn't do it. But we went up to where they were cleaning the elephants about another three, four, five hundred yards, and they told the guys, uh, we just saw lions down there. And when they said that, every one of them went and hit the flatbed trucks and, and refused to do any more cleaning. Wow. They took them out that night, and we went in the back the next morning, uh, and they all did it. I took videos of the whole process, cleaning these elephants, using chainsaws on the bones. It was unbelievable. Wow. Uh, the women came in, carried the meat on their head out, uh, they distributed the meat right there on the spot. It took them oh, another four or five hours to do all of that. That's fascinating. And that's, yeah. to me, that's one of the lesser known and more realistic aspects of life on this planet, you know, is yeah. Uh, yeah. nature, same, red and yeah, tooth the, and claw. Yeah, the same thing happened with a hippo. They uh, they called the uh, people in a little village close to us, and after I killed it, here they were. There's another 40-plus people, and uh, I got videos of that. I'm cleaning them, and the women putting the uh, uh, meat on their head in a basket and walking away. I, I love hearing yeah. stories like that because I'm— I feed my family with game meat. We don't buy beef. Uh, and so I'm, I'm always, I love hearing that kind of thing. You, I know, I know based on having followed you for a while and reading about you that you are typical of a handgun hunter in that you like to have different guns. You have several gun, several custom guns, several barrels, and you change up the kind of guns that you use. Can you talk to me about some of your most prized hand, hunting handguns? Yeah, well, first of all, my house burned down in 2002. Mm. I had 65 guns, rifles and handguns, and my best friend, J.D. Jones, came down and took them all back, and he was able to save four. Mm. He told me, tell me what you want, and I, I was depressed then. I was the lowest ever. He tell, He told me, tell me what you want, and I'll start making them. Well, I told him what I wanted, and every month I had three. He had three guns ready for me. Wow! And uh, I went to uh, his house, is about uh, three and a half, four hours from me, and got those guns. And he he saved my psyche. JD's been my best friend ever since. Uh, when he started making them, I did not get any more rifles. Uh, uh -huh. The rifles had burned up. I let them go. He made me only handguns, and he's made me all the handguns, all the single-shot handguns I have, Encores, XPs, and uh, uh, Contenders, and uh, he helped me get a bunch of the revolvers I have. Uh, my number one gun he made for me is easily by far my 6.5-284 XP100. Uh, I killed everything with it. I've killed groundhogs. I've killed a couple turkeys with it. I've killed over 500 deer with it. I shot it so much that after 2,200 rounds, the barrel, uh, the first part of the barrel was smooth as a shotgun bore, <laughs> so I had to have him put a new barrel on it. Wow. I, the last time I went to Africa, that's the only uh, single shot gun I took, and I killed all my animals with it. And the nicest one, I killed a 800-pound uh, kudu, 
at 365 yards with one shot from that 6.5284. But he he's made me, uh, you know, unusual guns. I got a, a 338 Magnum JDJ Encore. He took a 338 and, and blew the shoulder out and made it sharper, and I've killed a bunch of stuff with that. I've got all the old uh, originals, a 6.5 JDJ, a 309 JDJ, a 338, 375. I've got everything. JD's been a, a great friend of mine. Yeah, that's quite the collection, Doc. Yeah. And another thing he's done, I don't know if many people know this, he ended up a sort of point, appointing me to be his bullet tester. Anytime... Uh, we got guns. Like uh, I bought a 300 Whisper from him when he first made them, mm-hmm. and the uh, the bullet he developed it with was a 240 grain Sierra Hollow Point Boat Tail match, and I killed some deer with it. But if they were a little bit alert, they tended to run aways, and uh, they weren't falling down very much. So I told JD that, and he said, "Hey, I want you to find out for me what works." So I ended up experimenting around, and I found that a 220-grain Sierra round-nose bullet will drop a deer about 95% of the time from a suppressed whisper. And then uh, he got hooked up with Lehigh bullets, and he hooked me up with Lehigh, and I did testing of their bullets uh, on the whisper, and I did that for many years. And the, the first ones didn't work out, and they kept developing new book of bullets. And finally, the one that they advertise now called a, it's a 186-grain Chaos, which is a 30-grain bullet with, a, uh, looks like a hollow point. It's got skivs around it. And in the center of that bullet, they've got a 17-caliber bullet mounted. And if you uh, shoot that in the deer, you got six uh, passive damage, four from the... Uh, nose, one from the 17 bullet and one from the 30 caliber base and that drops the deer about 98% of the time. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, I know that you, I knew that you had done a lot of experimentation with uh, different bullets. I didn't realize that about the Lehigh though. That's, that's interesting. Oh yeah. And they make a, they make a bullet now in a 375 caliber and the last bear I killed two years ago uh, killed a 220 pound bear at 220 yards and with a three uh, 250 grain Lehigh Chaos bullet that splits up just like the uh, Whisper bullet does. And I dropped him as tracks. And one bullet went through both shoulders, uh, one uh, pedal went through the spine, one went in the tenderloin, one went in the lung, one went in the liver. Wow. That bear didn't have a chance. Yeah. Do you have uh, Do you have wild pigs where you are? No, no. Just curious. That's a that's that's, that's I not. I wish I did. I got a friend in Georgia that's working on them big time. He's a HHI member, but no, nope, I don't have pigs here. I don't know what the status is, but they're spreading. <laughs> oh yeah, they're spreading big time. We we've got pigs. They imported them to the southern the southern part of our state, and we have a regular season. But there's not many there. They didn't take very well. And I don't buy, and it's real steep mountains. That's where I grew up in the southern part of the state. And my legs won't handle hunting in areas like that anymore. I don't know, Doc. You got some new knees, I heard. Yep, I got one new knee. I've been walking like crazy. I've <laughs> killed, uh, my groundhog total this year already is up to 140. Wow. <laughs> 
What's uh what's for for non depredation style hunting? What's the season and bag limit in West Virginia and the deer population like? Uh, two bucks and uh, does you can kill up to uh, five no three if you buy enough tags for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's five deer I can kill, and I usually get close to that every year. I didn't last year because my knee was hurting me so bad, yeah. and I gave up the last two doe seasons and went and had my knee fixed mm-hmm. so I could hunt more this year. That's all it is. Turkeys, you can hunt, uh, uh, you can kill a, one or two gobblers in the spring, and if you only kill one gobbler, you can kill one gobbler or hen in the fall. But squirrels, the limit's six a day, 36 total altogether you can keep. Bears, one a year is it normally. What's your uh, regular deer season? What what dates? Oh, it's the first Monday of uh, November mm-hmm. and uh, the, that week and the week after. Okay. And a lot of people on this podcast may not know that I was shot on the first day of deer season in 1998. I actually just, you know that? yes, I was, uh, I, I was scanning the, the old classic six gunners with the story in it. You yep. were shot in the bicep, right? Yep. I was sitting on the ground in a hot day and everybody asked me, did you hear the shot? And did you feel it? No, I did not hear it. When what I felt was a stinging in my arm that I thought was a bee sting. Well, I looked at my arm, and the blood was pumping out, and it obviously wasn't a bee sting. <laughs> so I took my sweatshirt jacket off and kept the shot arm in it, and I wrapped it and kept wrapping it until I slowed the blood down, and I knew I needed help, and I started hollering for help, and nobody said anything. I didn't see anybody, so I got a little foul mouth, and a guy peeked out from the tree and said, Are you hollering at me? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I was hollering at him. So I made him take me back to my vehicle about a half-mile walk. He wanted me to believe my gun and my backpack and everything on the ground. I made him carry it. The walk back was up a hill, and he was a smoker, and I thought he was going to die from me from his breathing. <laughs> <laughs> when I got to the hospital, they stripped me off. I had a 5-inch exit wound in my arm. Uh, he shot me with a uh, 7mm Magnum, a 150-grain Winchester PowerPoint. He shot across my chest. He shot me in an angle. Wow. It missed my heart by about two inches and hit my upper arm and uh, had the five-inch exit hole. I had about two hours of surgery to get all the bullet fra- to get most of the bullet fragments out. I still have them in there, some of them. And it took me about uh, three or four weeks to recover halfway, and the, the farm I got shot on was posted, and the farmer took me back in a doe season, and he helped me, and he helped me go out and shoot a doe, because I was debating in my mind that I really want to do this again. Yeah, right. So I shot a doe, and I kept on hunting after that. I assume, I assume you're right-handed. I'm ambidextrous. Okay, well... <laughs> with my guns. With, uh, with, my, with handguns, I'm ambidextrous. Uh, rifles, I'm left-handed. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but uh, pistols, I can shoot either way. Did did the did you get shot in the bone? Did it hit your bone at all? It missed the humerus, that bone in my upper arm, mm-hmm. by one eighth of an inch. Wow! Going to the hospital, I lost forty percent of my blood. Man, 
It was a nightmare. I hope you're making. I hope you're writing some memoirs, Doc, because the life and times of Doctor Larry Rogers would be a great read. Yeah, I, I want to write a book, but my problem is I'm technologically messed up with computers. I have pictures that are photos, that are slides, that are on my camera. I don't know how and I don't know where to get all of those transferred to uh, a book. Mm-hmm. I don't have any problems writing, as you can tell from the six-gunner, right. but uh, the pictures thing is my problem. <laughs> well, then let's maybe sometime we can talk about that offline because I'm all about preserving yeah. that kind of thing, and I would be glad to Good. talk about helping you. Good. Good. Okay, so... Man, I feel like every, uh, I mean this in the best way possible, but you're like an onion. Every question I answer peels off another layer of something interesting. I th- I feel like, you know, with all the experience you've had of handgun hunting and the equipment over the years, you've probably seen a lot of things come and go in the industry. Uh, guns that yep. are available or were available that aren't, etc. Can you talk about some of the things that you wish were still available that aren't? Yeah, one main thing, really. If if you're going to be a handgun hunter, you got to learn how to shoot from different positions. Shooting off the ground is easy. I use a backpack stuffed with pillows. It works all the time. Shooting off a bench, piece of cake. Shooting when you're standing up is a different thing. Some people have tried to develop things. Uh, the original tripods that uh, I can't remember the company that developed them now, they were thin and shaky. I used them. They were better than nothing. But when the bog pod came out, that helped, but they didn't have a decent rest at first. Then they put the PSR rest on it, precision shooting rest. That turned handgun hunting into real hunting you can shoot unbelievable business my longest deer kill on a psr is 565 yards but bog pod ended up stopping making them i can't understand why they sold them all out and they still don't make them that's the worst thing we're without without Uh, i used to use uh, bipods they work sometimes but you can't get above high grass with them just the bog pod with the PSR is the biggest thing that could help us. I've got three PSRs. Mm. I figured they'd go bad. One of them broke, but I got it fixed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the PSR and the bog pod's a thing. As far as everything else, you know, there's many things that come and go. There's always a replacement for them. I don't worry about that. I got my bog pod and my pistols. I can do anything I want. Can you tell me the... The PSR, funny enough, Bog Pod was started in the uh, by people that are in the town in the town where I'm from, where I'm sitting right now in Central Texas in Fredericksburg. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. and then they sold it, and that's I think when the PSR was discontinued. What did you mount the PSR to? Was it a bipod or a tripod or a monopod? Oh, tripod. 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 Yeah, okay. bipods. You know, bipods are too wiggly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and tripods sort of are too. But with the PSR, you can rest the butt of your gun on that plate on the PSR. And that gives you almost as much stability as shooting off a bench. Do you uh, take a two-handed hold on the PSR? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I know it has with that. my little guns, like my, my two, yesterday I used my 223. Uh, I put, uh, I take a one-handed hold there, but I put my hand on the scope so it doesn't jump any. 
Gotcha. What yeah. what is is the PS? Uh, I've uh, I've never been able to see one except pictures because they were discontinued by the time I was aware of them. Are they uh-huh. are they like made of ABS or other kind of plastic? Yeah, a hard type of plastic. Right. Uh huh. So and when mine broke, the the connection there's a there's a flat piece. And then there's an up-and-down piece with a U-shaped on it mm-hmm. where you put the uh, forend of your gun. That's where the weakness is, where those two connect together. That's what broke. And my friend in Georgia took a piece of metal and made a, a L out of it and screwed it to the up-and-down piece and the flat piece. And that's what I use, and that's it's stable as the devil, and I take it to Africa oh, that's, all the time. That's interesting. And I'm taking it to Idaho this year on my next uh, uh, rock chuck hunt. How... I've killed so many groundhogs in West Virginia. I have to go to Idaho now to hunt rock chuck. <laughs> <laughs> how how much does the PSR weigh? Do you think weigh? Yeah, ounces. Okay, that's light, very light. That's one of the things. Um, have you have you heard of trifecta? The trifecta handgun rest. Uh huh. Well, Brian yeah. Thurber is a good HHI member, and that is the same is a similar concept, and it is very stable. Uh, and very well built, and it is great for using as a rest. It's it, it's not a it's not an ounces proposition though, you know. And so I'm always right. I, I'm like you. I'm uh, I'm curious about because I do a lot of walking and stalking and spot and stalk and still hunt or whatever you want to call it. And yeah, me too. something that is just barely adds any weight to my sticks or whatever is I'm 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 like you. Yeah. I'm on the lookout for something like that. And the nice thing about the bog pod and the PSR for me, I use the uh, bog pod as a cane. Right. After I had my surgery, uh, well, before I had my surgery, I had such bad arthritis in my knee, I had to have either a cane or a walking stick or something. I just used my bog pod all the time for the cane. And when I got ready to shoot, all I had to do was spread their legs and I was ready to go. Yeah. Do you hunt with handgun scopes exclusively? No. I've. I had a cataract in one eye, and I got it fixed, and I can see open sights pretty good through that eye. So mm-hmm. I hunt some uh, with open sights. Uh, most of my hunting now is long range. I've killed all the animals around here that you can get close to. <laughs> <laughs> I used to kill a lot of groundhogs and deer with uh, uh, 357 SIG, a 40 Smith & Wesson, 45 ACP, mm-hmm. but these deer have learned. If the hitman's around, you don't get close to him. So <laughs> most of my hunting's long range now. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> there's a there's yeah, an un- underground yeah. message system warning about the hitman coming yeah. into town. Yeah, yeah. I've got the groundhogs though. I've developed a whistle. Ground from what I can tell, groundhogs have two whistles. They've got a warning whistle, and they got a "Who are you?" whistle. Mm-hmm. And if I go to a field and do the who are you whistle, about 60% of the time, I can bring a groundhog out of his hole. Wow. <laughs> is this just something, can you do it for me? No, it's hard to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, I'd love to hear that sometime. My mouth's dry right now. I got you. And I don't yeah. want to give away all my secrets. Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but that's very interesting. That's, yeah. yeah. Another thing that's impressive is how detailed your records of all of your exploits are. Is this something like what is your system for keeping that kind of data? Well, when I moved here in 1975 and started shooting 
groundhogs and deer with rifles and, and arrow. I thought, well, maybe I ought to make notes about it. So I take big 8 by 11 pieces of paper and I make columns. And uh, in one column, I put all the guns that use. And at the upper part of the paper, I put uh, 0 to 25 yards, 25 to 100, 100 to 200, 200 to 300, and greater than 300. And I put marks on it. And I've done that since 1975. So I have an enormous amount of records that I can go back and look. Plus, I've got all the handgunners. Oddly enough, in my house fire, only two things survive my house fire. The handgunners and our family Bible. Wow. Weird. Totally weird. <laughs> the the six-gunner, the old newspapers? Yeah. Wow. Yep. yep. They survived. I don't know how, but they did. I had them in a box. The boxes smoked. Yeah. But they're fine. <laughs> wow. And it's funny because those are probably literally one of the most flammable things. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Okay. So, again, I know your experience is vast. If you were a young man now and you got the itch to become a handgun hunter, what would your path be given all of the things that are true today? Yeah, seeing everything that's advertised and knowing some other people that are into it, which is nobody here. I'm the only true handgun hunter in this part of the state. There's some in the other part, but nobody's as, as, as intense as me. I think I would probably lean first to XP-100s and then to revolvers. Semi-automatics, nobody uses them around here except the target practice of 9MMs. Uh, you don't see, hear, see or hear of anybody hunting with them. And revolvers, uh, everybody and his brother around here is buying 460 Smiths, and they shoot them, but they don't hunt with them. Uh, nobody wants 500s, nobody wants 454s, uh, but that's probably what I'd lean to, and I'd, I'd go probably with the XP-100s. They're by far more accurate than the, all the other guns. That's where I'd lean towards. Good tip. Do you? Here's another question that I thought of. You, you said, you know, in your early career talking about becoming dedicated and experiencing some successes and some not so successes in the field and dedicating yourself to practice. What was your path of practice? Like, did you have a, a regimen that you followed or what was your, what was the development of your skill that you did for yourself? Yeah. When I, when I bought my house, it was on 10 acres. So I immediately thought, uh-huh, I'm going to have a shooting range because I work so much. I don't have time to go running around. So my dad came and helped me, and we he built me a shooting bench, and we put uh, the target uh, things up at 25, 50, and 100 yards. So anytime I had some free time, I'd go outside and shoot a little bit. And once I hunted, uh, went totally to handguns in '78, uh, uh, I saw that I, I wasn't I, I was shooting good on target, but I wasn't shooting too good at uh, the deer and the groundhogs at all. So I, instead of shooting off the bench, I started shutting up pop cans and, and uh, bottle, not bottles, uh, milk jugs and things like that and shooting all of them offhand. And that's, that's what I got into it. Anytime I had problems shooting a gun, I just kept working on it more. I didn't give up on it. And, and that, that's an approach I used on everything that happened. If I couldn't find good ways to rest my gun, 
I kept working on it until I did find a good way. If I couldn't find a bullet to perform good on game, I kept experimenting with butter bullets until I found one that did. So there's a lot of bullets I don't use anymore. I don't bother buying them because I know from my experience they don't work. And that's the same way with my, my guns and all. If, if you don't practice, 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 and be persistent, you're not going to learn anything about your abilities or about the equipment that you use. That is, that's a wise thing to, to realize. I think, you know, thinking about one of my biggest takeaways from today, what you've talked about is, and I try to incorporate this into my shooting ability or shooting practice rather, is the variation that you must practice at with rather. And so, you know, field positions, offhand, different kinds of targets, that kind of thing, just how essential that is. Yeah. And another thing that helped, when uh, I got my concealed primary permit shortly after I lived here, I got to be buddies with all the local police and town and the sheriff and, and all. And uh, they, I learned they had to qualify each year. So I went and qualified with them each year for years. And uh, the funny thing about that is they never beat me. <laughs> never, <laughs> ever beat me. And some of them got real bent out of shape. And I would hear them talking on the side about, well, we'll, we'll carry a snub nose 38, but they're no good for anything else. So every time I heard them talk about a gun that wasn't any good uh, for anything, I practiced with it before the qualifications, and I shot 100% with the 38, right hand, left hand, 7 yards, 25 yards, 50 yards. I, I shot 100% with a full load on 44 Magnum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It drove these guys crazy all the time, but I, they didn't know how much I practiced. But I did that for the fun of it. But that helped me with my shooting abilities too, because all that shooting, uh, a little bit you use, you got to shoot braced, but most of them was offhand. Right, that and teaches I, you trigger control. Yeah, I really like that what you just said because so much of I I feel like so much of a handgun hunters shooting and talking about it is kind of busting some myths about it and being able to prove to people what can be done. And, um, I was hunting with some other HHI members a couple weeks ago and we were talking about how we don't know of a situation where the limitation on handgun hunting is the gun not the shooter. Right. And I, I, I just love hearing stories about how people, you know, well, this can't be done. Well, watch. <laughs> yeah. Most things can, if you're persistent and patient enough to practice. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent advice. So kind of my last question, and then I want to give you a chance to share any other awesome stories that you have you know, when, when JD started HHI and you had people involved, uh, JD, Larry Kelly, you know, all those people that were coming up, Lee Juris, who else would have been in that, uh, you know, Skeeter. And, uh, of course, Elmer Keith was one of the godfathers. And we got into what a lot of people think about as the heyday of handgun hunting, where people were enthusiastic, new things were being discovered and developed all the time you know, the glory days kind of a thing. And I, in my opinion, that ended with 
basically with the introduction of the X-Frame, you know, that was the last big, large industry thing that was intentionally put out for handgun hunters. There obviously, I don't mean to talk negatively about any other companies that have been doing really good work with products, but I kind of feel like the, the, the cycle of handgun hunting is that it was, you know, in the sixties when you had the introduction of the contender and the XP, and that was the start of let's prove what handgun hunting can do. And a lot of it was proven. And then when that kind of day crescendoed and it seems like a lot of people forgot all the work that people like you and again, JD and all them were doing. And now we're in a situation where we're back to maybe not square one, but probably square two about proving handgun hunting again. So that's a long, long way of saying, do you think there's a way for us to recapture, you know, ride a wave into handgun hunting becoming more popular again? And if so, what do you think the key to that is? Well, I don't know. Right now, to me, it looks like it's a generational thing. When I go to the gun range, all the guys that's in their 20s and late teens and maybe early 30s, they're shooting black rifles. That's all they want to fool with. Anytime they have a handgun, it's a 9mm, and they make try to make it sound like a machine gun. The guys in their 30s and 40s and 50s, they're almost exclusively rifle hunters. And the only handgun guys I see out there is guys in my age bracket, 60s and 70s. And I think it's pretty much that way nationwide. If you look at the post uh, on several of these websites, you don't see a lot of young guys professing or using handguns at all. The the These... these uh, outdoor channels on the TVs or the hunting and all, I watch them for the heck of it. There's nothing else to do. and there, Some of them aren't very believable, but they're all rifles. They're all rifles. Uh, Cabela's does have this one guy in Texas who does handguns, but he doesn't experiment very much, and he uses only Smith handguns. So until we get some better coverage and exposure to the world of handguns, I don't think it's going to change. I think the guys in... in uh, mid to later generations are the ones that's going to keep it going but I, for me it looks like the younger guys have absolutely no interest in it at all and that's a shame because it's it's better if more of a challenge and sooner or later these black guns are probably going to be limited some. So that brings another question to my mind. Do you think that the younger generation isn't keen because they've heard about it and they're not interested? Or they haven't heard about it. They don't hear much about it, and they're not interested because it's cool from all this junk they watch on TV, all these war movies and everything. Guys using these full automatic rifles, they want to emulate them and get their black guns, and so they can act like they're going to be a tough guy. And nobody, these these kids are not willing to take the time or the interest to, to even learn about it. I've tried to show some of these people out here at our local range about handguns, and they just have no interest at all. The, the only exception is my, my best friend's son. I've taught him, and he shoots pretty darn good. And I took him to Africa two years ago, and he bugged me to death. 
until I let him shoot some stuff with a handgun. I made him take a rifle, but he, he ended up stealing stuff with my handgun, and he shoots about as good as anybody else does around here. Uh, but uh, but this this uh, desire, these these younger people just don't have it, and I don't know if more exposure is going to help or not. Well, the important thing is that you have at least one. Yeah. You know that it all. That's all it takes to kind of reignite a spark. And yep. there, there are. I'll, I'll tell you just because I know, obviously, as the director, of the membership in HHI, we have several younger members that are kind of in the young family stage, twenties, you know, twenties to forties, and some of them are extremely keen. And I think there will always be embers of this community you know, just waiting. And we are, we do yeah. see a few, we do see a few, um, stirrings in the industry of a few companies that are taking notice. And one of the things that I've been impressed by that some certain industry folks have communicated to me is that handgun hunters out of all the different types of hunting, we put our money where our mouth is. Like we will buy yeah. things. We will buy things that we want because we're also, I don't know any handgun hunter. That's also not a handgun collector. But the magazines have to approach us. And, uh, you know, there's only one magazine, American handgunner. That's really almost exclusively handguns. Everything else is almost exclusively rifles. They just, they don't give us any coverage, any exposure. And that's a big problem. You're right. And I hope, I hope that's one of the things that we can do with this podcast with HHI is start exposing this to other folks. Right. Yeah. Right. So is there anything in your uh, storied career of handgun hunting that we haven't gotten to that you have another good story about to share with us before we close out? No, most that's, that's most of the good stories I want to share until I do my book. <laughs> but uh, but I think we owe handgun hunting to two or three or four icons. Obviously, Elmer Keith, but more importantly, I think, is J.D. Jones, who I consider my best friend, and Larry Kelly, who I've known for a good while, and his son Ken, super good people. I've worshipped those people. Uh, they got me to be more uh, fanatical about my handgun hunting. Uh, they have done everything. And you, Ryan, need a world of thanks for reinventing Handgun Hunters International. We need to keep stuff like this going to at least start getting people interested so we can hopefully expand our base more. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It means a lot to me. Doc, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. I know it's going to be valuable to our membership and everybody that listens to it. Your experience is so valuable and your um, advice also to younger generations. I'm glad that we're preserving this knowledge. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ron. Man, they just don't make them like Doc anymore. That was amazing. I was so grateful to be able to have that conversation with him. And he is going strong. He's still hunting. He's still traveling. And he is just such a wealth of knowledge and resources. He's always supportive of other handgun hunters, offering to help them out. 
HHI members have been making the pilgrimage to Doc's house for a long time to hunt with him and to chat with him and just meet him. And I'm so grateful that he took the time to do this interview with me today. And I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.